Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you living legends that are my listeners. This Friday, I'm bringing you Dracula Part 9, and I'm using my new software to tweak the audio and work my magic. This has led to a shorter-than-usual episode, but once I get my bearings and iron out the kinks, it'll sound better and operate far more smoothly than before. Last episode, we saw Dracula land and transform into a wolf when the ship had landed at port. Nothing of the crew to be found, and the captain of the ship was bound to the ship's steering wheel to ensure the course was set to Whitby. Now, we're going to find out more about the aftermath in this place, as well as returning to Mina's journal. Let's jump right on inmates. Mina Murray's journal. 8th August. Lucy was very restless all night, and I, too, could not sleep. The storm was fearful, and as it boomed loudly among the chimney pots, it made me shudder. When a sharp puff came, it seemed to be like a distant gun. Strangely enough, Lucy did not wake, but she got up twice and dressed herself. Fortunately, each time I awoke in time and managed to undress her without waking her, and got her back to bed. It is a very strange thing, this sleepwalking, for as soon as her will is thwarted in any physical way, her intention, if there be any, disappears, and she yields herself almost exactly to the routine of her life. Early in the morning, we both got up and went down to the harbour to see if anything had happened in the night. There were very few people about, and though the sun was bright and the air clean and fresh, the big, grim-looking waves that seemed dark themselves because the foam that topped them was like snow, forced themselves in through the narrow mouth of the harbour, like a bullying man going through a crowd. Somehow, I felt glad that Jonathan was not on the sea last night, but on land. But oh, is he on land or sea? Where is he and how? I am getting fearful anxious about him. If I only knew what to do and could do anything. 10th of August. The funeral of the poor sea captain today was most touching. Every boat in the harbour seemed to be there. And the coffin was carried by captains all the way from Tate Hill Pier up to the churchyard. Lucy came with me, and we went early to our old seat, whilst the cortege of boats went up the river till the viaduct and came down again. We had a lovely view, and saw the procession nearly all the way. The poor fellow was laid to rest quite near our seat, so that we stood on it when the time came and saw everything. Poor Lucy seemed much upset. She was restless and uneasy all the time, and I cannot but think that her dreaming at night is telling on her. She is quite odd in one thing. She will not admit to me that there is any cause for restlessness, or if there be, she does not understand it herself. There is an additional cause, in that poor old Mr. Swales was found dead this morning on our seat, his neck being broken. He had evidently, as the doctor said, fallen back in the seat in some sort of fright, for there was a look of fear and horror on his face 
that the men said made them shudder. Poor, dear old man. Perhaps he had seen death with his dying eyes. Lucy is so sweet and sensitive that she feels influences more acutely than other people do. Just now she was quite upset by a little thing which I had not much heed, though I am myself very fond of animals. One of the men who came up here often to look for the boats was followed by his dog. The dog is always with him. They are both quiet persons and I never saw the man angry nor heard the dog bark. During the service, the dog would not come to its master, who was on the seat with us, but kept a few yards off, barking and howling. Its master spoke to it gently, and then harshly, and then angrily. But it would neither come nor cease to make a noise. It was in a sort of fury, with his eyes savage, and all its hairs bristling out like a cat's tail when puss is on the warpath. Finally, the man, too, got angry, and jumped down and kicked the dog, and then took it by the scrap of the neck, and half dragged and half threw it on the tombstone on which the seat is fixed. The moment it touched the stone, the poor thing became quiet, and fell all into a tremble. It did not try to get away, but crouched down, quivering and cowering, and was in such a pitiable state of terror that I tried though without effect to comfort it. Lucy was full of pity too, but she did not attempt to touch the dog, but looked at it in an agonized sort of way. I greatly fear that she is of too super-sensitive a nature to go through the world without trouble. She will be dreaming of this tonight, I am sure. The whole agglomeration of things, the ship steered into port by a dead man, his attitude tied to the wheel with the crucifix and beads, the touching funeral, the dog, now furious and now in terror, will all afford material for her dreams. I think it will be best for her to go to bed tired out physically, so I shall take her for a long walk by the cliffs to Robin Hood's Bay and back. She ought not to have much inclination for sleepwalking there. Chapter 8 Mina Murray's journal. Same day, 11 o'clock p.m. Oh, but I am tired. If it were not that I had made my diary a duty, I should not open it tonight. We had a lovely walk. Lucy, after a while, was in gay spirits, owing, I think, to some dear cows who came nosing in a field close to the lighthouse and frightened the wit out of us. <laughs> I believe we forgot everything except, of course, personal fear, and it seemed to wipe the slate clean and give us a fresh start. We had a capital severe tea at Robin Hood's Bay in a sweet little old-fashioned inn, with a bow window right over the seaweed-covered rocks of the Strand. I believe we should have shocked the new woman with our appetites. Men are more tolerant, bless them. Then we walked home with some, or rather many, stoppages to rest and with our hearts full of a consistent dread of wild bulls, Lucy was really tired, and we intended to creep off to bed as soon as we could. The young curate came in, however, and Mrs. Westerner asked him to stay for supper. Lucy and I had both a fight for it with the Dusty Miller. I know it was a hard fight on my part, and I am quite heroic. 
I think that someday the bishops must get together and see about breeding up a new class of curates who don't take supper, no matter how they may be pressed to, and who will know when girls are tired. Lucy is asleep and breathing softly. She has more color in her cheeks than usual and looks so, so sweet. If Mr. Holmwood fell in love with her seeing her only in the drawing room, I wonder what he would say if he saw her now. Some of the new women writers will someday start an idea that men and women should be allowed to see each other asleep before proposing or accepting. But I suppose the new woman won't condescend in future to accept. She will do the proposing herself, and a nice job she will make of it too. There's some consolation in that. I am so happy tonight because dear Lucy seems better. I really believe she has turned the corner and that we are over her troubles with dreaming. I should be quite happy if I only knew of Jonathan. God bless and keep him. 11 August, 3am. Diary again. No sleep now, so I may as well write. I am too agitated to sleep. We have had such an adventure, such an agonizing experience. I fell asleep as soon as I had closed my diary. Suddenly, I became broad awake and sat up with a horrible sense of fear upon me and of some feeling of emptiness around me. The room was dark, so I could not see Lucy's bed. I stole across and felt for her. The bed was empty. I lit a match and found that she was not in the room. The door was shut, but not locked, as I had left it. I feared to wake her mother, who has been more than usually ill lately. She threw on some clothes and got ready to look for her. As I was leaving the room, it struck me that the clothes she wore might give me some clue to her dreaming intention. Dressing gown would mean house, dress outside. Dressing gown and dress were both in their places. Thank God, I said to myself. She cannot be far, as she is only in her nightdress. I ran downstairs and looked in the sitting room. Not there. Then I looked in all the other open rooms of the house, with an ever-growing fear chilling my heart. Finally, I came to the hall door and found it open. It was not wide open, but the catch of the lock had not caught. The people of the house are careful to lock the door every night, so I feared that Lucy must have gone out as she was. There was no time to think of what might happen. A vague, overmastering fear obscured all details. I took a big, heavy shawl and ran out. The clock was striking one as I was in the crescent, and there was not a soul in sight. I ran along the north terrace, but could see no sign of the white figure which I expected. At the edge of the west cliff above the pier, I looked across the harbour to the east cliff, in the hope, or fear, I don't know which, of seeing Lucy in our favourite seat. There was a bright full moon, with heavy black driving clouds, which threw the whole scene into a fleeting diorama of light and shade as they sailed across. For a moment or two I could see nothing, as the shadow of the cloud obscured St. Mary's Church and all around it. Then as the cloud passed I could see the ruins of the abbey coming into view, and as the edge of a narrow band of light as sharp as a sword cut moved along, the church and the churchyard became gradually visible. Whatever my expectation was, it was not disappointed, for there, on our favourite seat, the silver light of the moon struck a half-reclining figure, snowy white. The coming of the cloud was too quick for me to see much, 
for shadow shut down on light almost immediately, but it seemed to me as though something dark stood behind the seat where the white figure shone and bent over it. What it was, whether man or beast, I could not tell. I did not wait to catch another glance, but flew down the steep steps to the pier and along by the fish market to the bridge, which was the only way to reach the east cliff. The town seemed as dead, for not a soul did I see. I rejoiced that it was so, for I wanted no witness of poor Lucy's condition. The time and distance seemed endless, and my knees trembled and my breath came labored as I toiled up the endless steps to the abbey. I must have gone fast, and yet it seemed to me as if my feet were weighted upon with lead, and as though every joint in my body were rusty. When I got almost to the top, I could see the seat and the white figure, for I was now close enough to distinguish it even through the spells of shadow. There was undoubtedly something, long and black, bending over the half-reclining white figure. I called in fright, Lucy! Lucy! And something raised a head, and from where I was I could see a white face and red, gleaming eyes. Lucy did not answer, and I ran onto the entrance of the churchyard. As I entered, the church was between me and the seat, and for a minute or so I lost sight of her. When I came in view again, the cloud had passed, and the moonlight struck so brilliantly that I could see Lucy half reclining with her head lying over the back of the seat. She was quite alone, and there was not a sign of any living thing about. When I bent over her, I could see that she was still asleep. Her lips were parted, and she was breathing. Not softly as usual with her, but in long gasps, as though striving to get her lungs full at every breath. As I came close, she put up her hand in her sleep, and pulled the collar of her nightdress close around her throat. While she did so, there came a little shudder through her, as though she felt the cold. I flung the warm shawl over her and drew the edges tight round her neck, for I dreaded lest she should get some deadly chill from the night air, unclad as she was. I feared to wake her all at once, so in order to have my hands free that I might help her, I fastened the shawl at her throat with a big safety pin, but I must have been clumsy in my anxiety and pinched or pricked her with it, for by and by, when her breathing became quieter, she put her hand to her throat again and moaned. When I had her carefully wrapped up, I put my shoes on her feet, and then began very gently to wake her. At first she did not respond, but gradually, she became more and more uneasy in her sleep, moaning and sighing occasionally. At last, as time was passing fast, for many other reasons, I wished to get to her home at once. I shook her more forcibly, till finally she opened her eyes and awoke. She did not seem surprised to see me, as, of course, she did not realize all at once where she was. Lucy always wakes prettily. And even at such a time when her body must have been chilled with cold and her mind somewhat appalled at working unclad in a churchyard at night, she did not lose her grace. She trembled a little and clung to me when I told her to come at once with me home. She rose without a word, with the obedience of a child. As we passed along, the gravel hurt my feet and Lucy noticed me wince. She stopped and wanted to insist upon my taking my shoes but I would not. 
However, when we got to the pathway outside the churchyard, where there was a puddle of water remaining from the storm, I daubed my feet with mud, using each foot in turn on the other, so that as we went home, no one, in case we should meet anyone, should notice my bare feet. Fortune favoured us, and we got home without meeting a soul. Once we saw a man who seemed not quite sober, passing along a street in front of us, but we hid in a door till he had disappeared up an opening, such as there are steep little closes, or wines as they call them in Scotland. My heart beat so loud all the time that sometimes I thought I should faint. I was filled with anxiety about Lucy, not only for her health, lest she should suffer from the exposure, but for her reputation in case the story should get wind. When we got in, and had washed our feet, and had said a prayer of thankfulness together, I tucked her into bed. Before falling asleep, she asked, even implored, not to say a word to anyone, even her mother, about her sleepwalking adventure. I hesitated at first to promise, but on thinking of the state of her mother's health and how the knowledge of such a thing would fret her, and thinking, too, of how such a story might become distorted, nay, infallibly would, in case it should leak out, I thought it wiser to do so. I hope I did right. I have locked the door and the key is tied to my wrist, so perhaps I shall not be again disturbed. Lucy is sleeping soundly, the reflex of dawn is high and far over the sea. Same day, noon. All goes well. Lucy slept till I woke her and seemed not to have even changed her side. The adventure of the night does not seem to have harmed her. On the contrary, it has benefited her, for she looks better this morning than she has done for weeks. I was sorry to notice that my clumsiness with the safety pin hurt her. Indeed, it might have been serious, for the skin of her throat was pierced. I must have pinched up a piece of loose skin and have transfixed it, for there are two little red points, like pinpricks, and on the band of her nightdress was a drop of blood. When I apologized and was concerned about it, she laughed and petted me, and said she did not even feel it. Fortunately, it cannot leave a scar, as it is so tiny. Same day, night. We passed a happy day. The air was clear and the sun bright, and there was a cool breeze. We took our lunch to Mulgrave Woods, Mrs. Westenra driving by the road and Lucy and I walking by the cliff path and joining her at the gate. I felt a little sad myself, for I could not but feel how absolutely happy it would have been had Jonathan been with me. But there, I must only be patient. In the evening we strolled into the casino terrace and heard some good music by Spoher and Mackenzie, and went to bed early. Lucy seems more restful than she has been for some time, and fell asleep at once. I shall lock the door and secure the key the same as before, though I do not expect any trouble tonight. 12th of August. My expectations were wrong, for twice during the night I was wakened by Lucy trying to get out. She seemed, even in her sleep, to be a little impatient at finding the door shut and went back to bed under a sort of protest. I woke with the dawn and heard the birds chirping outside of the window. Lucy woke too, and I was glad to see, was even better than on the previous morning. All her old gaiety of manner seemed to have come back, 
and she came and snuggled in bed beside me and told me all about Arthur. I told her how anxious I was about Jonathan, and then she tried to comfort me. Well, she succeeded somewhat, for though sympathy can't alter facts, it can help to make them more bearable. 13th of August. Another quiet day, and to bed with the key on my wrist as before, again I awoke in the night and found Lucy sitting up in bed, still asleep pointing to the window. I got up quietly and pulling aside the blind, looked out. It was brilliant moonlight, and the soft effect of the light over the sea and sky, merged together in one great silent mystery, was beautiful beyond words. Between me and the moonlight flitted a great bat, coming and going in great whirling circles. Once or twice it came close, but was, I suppose, frightened at seeing me, and flitted away across the harbour towards the abbey. When I came back from the window, Lucy had lain down again, and was sleeping peacefully. She did not stir again, all night. So it begins, my friends. Dracula has been luring Lucy out of her home to their favourite seat by the sea to feast on her blood. I couldn't help but wonder how pissed off Dracula must have been when every other night she doesn't turn up. Can you imagine what's going through his mind at the time? Will she be late? How am I thwarted by something as simple as a lock? Maybe I should just go to Lucy instead. But ever patient is our Dracula. And he plays the long game for sure. If any of you have seen Dracula Dead and Loving It, I'll include a particular scene in the show notes that I love that reminds me exactly of what's going on here. The film had me in stitches. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favour and go watch it. Much like Bram Stoker's Dracula, that horror comedy is a classic in its own right. Before I sign off, I want to thank the legends that support this show. Firstly, my jaw-dropping, amazing Odinite Titan, Maya. Your level of support always knocks my socks off. I've been using RX7 thanks to you, and that's allowed this podcast to access some serious, restorative tools for old-time radio. So thank you so much. And I know how much you love your OTRs. I'm spending even more time to bring the best quality audio to you and my listeners out there. Thanks, mate. And my two epic white tea warlords, I own cows and Lee Bauer. Talk about kick-ass support. You two lovelies provide me coverage of some extra plugins and hopefully soon to a new editing platform for my audio. I'm in the process of choosing the right one and that means even better special effects. Thanks, mates. And of course, my Earl Grey enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Martini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, Dolphin and Cow, and Michelangelo Yacone. Mates, you lot are the rocket fuel in this show. Thank you so much for your support. Next week, I'm going to be sharing some more scary stories. Of course, a remastered old-time radio show and something special. So I can't wait to see you next week. Have a fantastic weekend, and as always, my devilish ghouls and gals, till next we meet.